0: Um, but this week, I, I am pleased and, and, and uh, grateful that I get to be able to introduce a friend of mine. That's uh, Pastor Aaron Collier. He's come up and, and share with us in a minute. And, and Pastor Aaron is someone I've known for a few years since, I guess, it could only be a few years, only been here a couple of years now. Um, but uh, gotten to know it at some of these uh, pastor conferences that we go to or gatherings we go to, and a local pastor of Heritage Baptist Church. And uh, he's got a double master's degrees from seminary back east and has been pastoring about 12 or 13 years now here locally. And In getting to know him, the reason I've asked him to share is is we're in this series called Bless, where we're looking at how do we engage with our neighbors in practical ways. As I got to know him, I realized we have a real kinship and heart, as his passion has been about a year and a half ago, so he'll share more of the story. The Lord really led him towards really intentionally engaging with neighbors, and so he's doing some of the things we've been talking about. And actually in really practical ways and seeing incredible fruit and engaging right in his neighborhood. Yes, here in the Seattle Pacific Northwest area, actually engaging with his neighbors, having endless neighbors over for meals and having gatherings with them. And so I've invited Aaron to kind of share a little bit of his story, his journey with that. And then kind of how God is using that in a practical way, even in this direct area, in these neighborhoods of getting neighbors in his house on a regular basis, talking about Jesus, talking about things that matter and listening really, really well. So Aaron, would you come forward, man? Thank you so much for joining us today. I just want to pray for you right before we start. Father, we thank you that uh, on this Father's Day, we get to celebrate uh, you as our ultimate heavenly father, as well as be able to acknowledge the wonderful role that, that, that fathers have played in, in pouring into our lives, Father. And whether it's a celebration for many or whether it's grief. Jesus, we thank you that that you are our rock, as we were singing about this morning, our solid, firm foundation. So right now, I lift up Aaron to you, Father, and pray that may you speak through him, Lord. May you open up our hearts to receive what you would have for us to receive. May our hearts be ready to hear your words, Lord, and to be challenged in what it looks like to truly love our neighbors. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.
1: Well, good morning joy to be here with you today, and I have really appreciated getting to know your your pastors, and uh, it's a it's a joy to be able to share God's Word with you today. I feel like half a person today. My wife is not here with me. She is uh, gone at a retreat in uh, Oregon. Johnny and friends, if you've heard of Johnny Erickson Tada, she and our oldest three kids are away, and they're going to be serving at that camp uh, with those with special needs and uh, hopefully being a blessing there, so... I've got my youngest two and my nephew here with me today, and I'm looking forward to being able to be with you today. We moved here about 12 years ago and um, from South Carolina with the goal of turning Seattle into the new Bible Belt of America. <laughs> and as you can see, it hasn't worked out so well. <laughs> and I feel like that phrase summarizes me in a lot of ways. I've always had above-average zeal, above-average ambition, with really average gifts and abilities. <laughs> you know, I'm super average in my uh, speaking abilities and intellect and uh, basically everything, personality, humor, below-average hair, but... <laughs> You know, most of these things I was hoping would somehow make me special. I focused on each one and said, maybe this is the way I'm going to contribute, or this is the way I'm going to be something special. And God kept reminding me, actually, you're, you're not that special. You don't need to be that special. I'm average. And you know, what? I'm happy to be average because God says that he uses the weak things of this world to confound the mighty." And it's not us, it's this treasure we have in jars of clay, and that's what I want to proclaim to you today. We have a God who is way, way, way above average. He's perfect. And I hope today that we'll get to just look at Him and that what we'll focus on today is going to stir you up to love Him more, to think about Him more, and to maybe move you to understand who you are and what you have in Him today. That's the goal, and that's the desire. And so, Pastor James asked me to speak today on the subject of blessing your neighbors, and he would like me to share some of the ways that God's using us uh, in our neighborhood. And again, it's a topic I don't feel much like an expert in. I'll be very honest on that. The reality is, I just believe that it's important to bless your neighbors. And if you believe something, there has to be an action that goes along with that. And so our family has taken some steps, and we've made a lot of mistakes, and we've done some things very badly, but anything worth doing is worth doing badly. And so you have to step out somewhere. You have to step out and try. And there's some things that God has done to move us, to move forward, and I do believe that God is doing something right here in the Pacific Northwest. He's building his kingdom in a slow, steady, natural, and supernatural way. And I want to share that with you right now. Ever since I moved here, I always kind of wondered, where do people go to just be, to just live? And I really struggled to find that place in our culture. I mean, you look in the Bible and you see the Mars Hills of the world, or you see the uh, temple courtyard, and people are gathering, and they're just kind of doing life together. And I was really burdened. I want to do life with the people in proximity. I want to love them and bless them, my neighbors, my neighbors. And yet the reality is, uh, as I was thinking about it, I was struggling to find that place. We have missionaries in Spain that we support, and we love them, and they talk about the town square where everybody just kind of gathers. And I'm thinking about our individualistic culture where you have somebody get in their car in their garage, they go pull out, they drive right back into their garage, and you never see them for weeks, for months even. In the wintertime, you may never see them at all. And so I was asking that question, where do people go to gather? Where do they go to just be? I want to be there with them. I want to serve them. I want to love them. I want to live with them. But really, most of the living in our culture takes place far away from where people live. That's our reality. So I asked that question, where, how? Maybe you struggle with that as well. About a year and a half ago, my wife and I were hit with a very outside-the-box thought. We were challenged to explore the possibility that maybe that place is our home. Now, a mentor uh, began, uh, that I was working with challenged us to begin a predictable pattern of inviting our neighbors over into our home on a weekly basis involving food somehow. That might be a breakfast club, a happy hour, or a dinner, but here's what I want you to think about. I want you to pretend, and this is going to take some amazing imagination today, I want you to pretend that I'm your mentor. All right, can you do that? Just just work with me for a second. I know I'm not. I don't have any authority over you, anything like that, but just pretend. I want you to pretend that I'm your mentor, and I'm going to give you that assignment. Can we go and put the assignment up there? that I am giving you this, predi- this assignment. Begin a predictable pattern of inviting your neighbors into your home on a weekly basis for a meal. Now, I'm going to give you your first assignment. I want you to come up with three objections to that challenge right now. OK, really do it. Do it. Think about it. Three things that you say, I object to that, if I were to give you that challenge. not a predictable enough schedule. Good. Go ahead and just think of them. How many of you have three things that came to mind just that quickly? All right. Yep. Okay. Um, I came up with about probably 60 in just a short amount of time when he gave it to me. You know, our house isn't big enough. Or one of our kids says, our house is too ugly. (laughs) My wife is saying, I'm not a good cook. What if they don't like our food? I don't have... The free time, a free evening, a predictable schedule like that. That'd be too expensive. No one will come. Or maybe someone will come. (laughs) There's strangers in my house. I'm an introvert, and I'll have to talk to someone. It isn't safe. It might mess up our family time. It might disrupt my comfortable patterns of life. Someone might steal something. Someone might break something. Or maybe you like to go the spiritual route. Well, it's not an actual biblical command. (laughs) Or perhaps you say, it's just not my gift. There's lots of things, and every one of those things popped into my head almost immediately. And so we examined each of these objections and determined that not one of them came from God. That all of those were based in fear. We were afraid. And then we start looking at what God says. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, self-control. There's no fear in love, but what does love do? Perfect love casts out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. And over 365 times, God says, do not be afraid. And so we decided to step out in faith and give it a try. Actually, we just decided we were going to do one and see what happened. And so we invited not all of our neighbors, but a good portion of our neighbors, especially people we knew. And the first day, about 30 people showed up. And we were shocked. And they're mostly people we, we knew pretty well. We've been in the neighborhood a while. But it was a blast. And we had awesome neighbors. And we knew a lot of them. Some we didn't know so well. But we just made it what we call the high invitation and low challenge event. Nothing was expected except to show up. And if somebody asked if they could bring something, we want to treat them like family. What do you do when your family asks? Hopefully you say, bring something. So we had people bringing stuff. And all of a sudden, it just sort of grew into something really, really fun, exciting. It was a joy to be there. And so our goal was treat people like family. Just invite people in and provide a safe place for people to just come and just be. We really just wanted to bless our neighbors. Now, there's no doubt that we believe the greatest blessing that anyone can have is to become a child of the perfect Father, our God. But that isn't really specifically what this time was about the goal here was just to be. If you spend enough time with our family, we're going to start talking about God. It's going to come out, and it does very often, but we just wanted it to be a time where people could come. We shared food. We shared stories. We shared laughter, and that first one was so much fun. We decided to do it again, and then again, and then again, and we ended up doing it now for over a year and a half. And it's amazing how much changes when you have a consistent time of being together. Because inorganic activities often lead, rise into organic activities. What you learn around the table allows you to have other connections that just begin to grow and spread. And now we're at ball games. We are at we go to the beach with people. We have people invite us over to, to do things with them. We work together. There's we hear about needs that we can all work together and pitch in to meet. Exciting things happen because you have a scheduled event that's inorganic that leads to all these organic activities where the gospel really starts to grow and flourish, where people start to get to know each other. You listen to people, you hear their stories without interrupting, and then very soon they're asking you for yours. It's really amazing. It's a beautiful thing. It's not like it's blowing up or all sorts of crazy things. I could tell you all kinds of amazing and really cool stories about this, but I'm not going to. The reason I'm not going to is because it's none of your business. (laughs) The reality is these are special stories that people share. People are not trophies to be won. They're friends to be cherished. And you can do that in your own neighborhood. So that's kind of the what of what's going on. But I don't want to focus on the what right now. I want to focus on the why behind the what. There's nothing um, really earth shattering or difficult in what God led us to do. But I have to admit, it took us a very long time to get around to doing it. In fact, it took us about six months between the time we were issued that challenge and us actually stepping out and doing it. And why is that? Well, the reality is we were afraid. This morning, my focus is not going to be on logistics or uh, possibilities of hosting. I hope that's if that's something that's interesting to you, again, I'd love to talk to you more about it. Pastor James has my contact information. He's welcome to give it out to whoever would like to hear more. I'd be happy to share different things and some of the ways that it's happened, the ways that it's worked, but I hope that this sparks some sort of interest or some kind of idea in you, then praise God for that, and if you'd like to talk about it further, I'd be happy to do that. But what I want to focus on this morning is how we can do what Zechariah talked about after the angel announced to John that the Messiah, or that his son John was going to announce that the Messiah was going to be here. Zechariah praises God that now we get to serve him without fear. And the thing that I struggled with more than anything in this path to, towards wanting to be a blessing to the neighbors was fear. It's fear. And so today I want to turn to you to the truth that my mentor also helped me with that helped us alleviate some of those fears to allow us to just step out and start to love the people in proximity to us. And the reality is, I just want to state, that our neighbors have probably blessed us way more than we've blessed them. It's amazing what God does, you know, and how he stirs people up, and there's just so much blessing that's poured out towards us that I am sometimes wonder if maybe this whole thing has been selfish. But the reality is, it's a joy to just be a part of what God is doing. The main passage that God used in my heart to stir me was Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus uh, then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And you probably hear that and think, Oh, great, another Great Commission message. And trust me, I understand that feeling. Sometimes we look at the Great Commission as very bad news, don't we? the Great Commission is good news. And I want to focus on one part of this, and it's probably not the direction you were thinking of. I'm only going to work on one phrase this morning, and it's that phrase, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. From that phrase, we get the next big thesis of the message, what you believe about God is going to determine what you believe about your identity. And what you believe about your identity is going to determine how you live. What you believe about God determines what you believe about your identity. And what you believe about your identity is going to determine how you live. You say, I don't see that there. Well, hopefully you will in just a moment. The word I want to focus on is that word, name. Such an important word right there, name. Except so often, we just kind of read over that and just sort of gloss over that word name. But the name is so important. It was a huge deal in Bible times, and in our culture, we don't treat the idea of name as that big of a deal. It's just sort of a descriptor that differentiates one person from another. But the word name had a much deeper meaning to that culture, and we have a word that I think actually connects really close to that in our culture. Now, name may not be a big deal, but the word identity is. Everybody's talking about identity. Everybody's looking for identity. Our culture is obsessed with identity. And I really think when you see that word name in the Bible, you can almost replace it with our word, identity. And you're gonna see things just absolutely explode and pop as you read through scripture and think of it in that term, think of that term in that place. We're always looking for an identity. Most people are incorrectly looking inwardly to try to find that identity. But a truth that captured my imagination and really helped us be encouraged to move forward in the mission God's called us to is that when we were baptized, we were immersed into a new identity. We were immersed into a new name. We renounced our old identity and God gave us a new one. Here's the cool part. That identity is based on God's own character. Do you see that there? See, what you believe about God is going to determine what you believe about your identity, and what you believe about your identity is going to determine how you live. The difference between, uh, quickly here, I want to talk, though, about the word believe, because uh, we struggle with that one. A lot of times we just think it means mental assent. There's a difference between belief and mental assent. How many of you believe that sugar is bad for you? All right, we mentally agree with that. Now, if I were to watch you for 24 hours or for a full week, would I conclude that you believe sugar is bad for you? All right, there's a difference between believing something and mentally agreeing with something. I know if you watched me, you would not believe that sugar is bad for me. You know, just a little bit more. Oh, one more won't hurt. Okay, I'm starting to feel a little guilty. I'll break it in half and eat half and then come out and eat the other half in a minute. You know, those types of things. We don't really believe sugar is that bad for us, at least in the way we live. Now, if I were to tell you, do you believe that God is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? You would say, oh, absolutely, I hope. But do you believe that that has altered your identity down to its very core? That's what we want to talk about today. What you believe about God determines what you believe about your identity. And so we want to talk about God today. That's why we're here. So if God is the Father, let's just stop there and think about that. Who is God? Well, he's the one who created all things. He's the one who designed and made this whole material world as a place where life could flourish. He is the eternal being that made a race of creatures in his own image So that we could rule over the earth on his behalf. If God is the father, then what's true of you? Well, this one's pretty obvious. If God's the father, I'm the child, right? And this is the first key part of our identity. You are a child in God's family. That's who you are. This is the first core piece of your identity, When you were baptized, you were renamed as a son, as a daughter of God. Wow. That's amazing. We're made in God's image. We're given the responsibility to work the earth for him. And if you're looking around, you're going to see marks of this identity everywhere. And you'll see it in believers and unbelievers alike. But when you become a child of God, when you accept Christ and you understand what he's done for you, you believe the good news that he died in your place and rose again for you, then all of a sudden things really change for you. You are now a fully accepted child in that family. And you get to do the works that the you get to take part in the family business so to speak. You are now part of the family. Isn't that amazing? Because God has adopted you into the family. This this identity is restored in you. This is new creation type of stuff. Paul says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. This is who you are now. I want you to just think about this verse and let it blow your mind. 1 John chapter 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Or this one, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. You know what? Many of us have been believers for most of our lives. And if that's you, sometimes we allow our minds to get clouded and we get bored with things that we should not get bored with. I don't know about you, but when I first came here, I could not get over the mountains. I mean, I was driving down 164th and would look up and see the snowcapped cascades and be like, whoa! And I asked a friend, will that ever get old? And the answer is yes, it does. (laughs) It shouldn't. It's not less amazing. But the reality is, as humans, I think part of the fall is we start to grow bored with things that shouldn't get boring. And the fact that we are children of God is something that a lot of times our minds grow cold to and we get bored with that truth. But think about all that that means. You are a child of a perfect father. You're a child of the king of the universe. You're a child of the God who literally owns everything. What kind of power and authority and privilege go along with that? We're being taught to hide our privilege, but you don't have to when you're a child of God. You get to live in that full authority and identity. I am his child. What does that mean? It means he's going to provide for you. It means he is going to discipline you. There's going to be training involved. It's not always punishment, but training. He's going to send things in your life that are difficult that you have to navigate. It's part of being his child, but every part of it is because you're loved. You are a fully loved child of God. And it's not based on your performance. It's not based on your ability. It's not based on how much you do. It's not based on your health or your wealth or your looks or even how much you know about God. It's based on the fact that God knows you, as Paul says in the book of Galatians. You have become known by God. You have a relationship, father to child, one of the most intimate relationships in the world. You are a child of God if you've trusted in Christ. That's your identity. That's who you are. The second thing, well, first, though, I want to find out, is that good news to you? Is that good news to you? Does that sound like good news? This is good news. This is life-changing. How would your life be different if you really believed you were a child of a perfect father? See, this does a lot to cast out the fears that I had in stepping out and obeying God and, and loving my neighbors more. It changes you when you have this kind of confidence The second thing we see is that God is the Son, baptized in the name of the Father. You're immersed in the identity of the Father. You're now a child. You're also immersed in the identity of the Son. Who is he? Well, he's the one who everything was created by and for, according to Paul. The Father purposed to make a loved gift for his Son of a people who would love him and worship him and be ruled by him and give him the glory that he deserves, and yet, those people that God made for him rebelled against him. They chose to choose an identity apart from him. And so, God sent him back into the world as the king to seek and save the lost. But he wasn't the king we expected, he came as a servant, he came to show the Father's heart towards these rebellious people. He came to bless and serve and love and extend mercy and grace. And he showed love by identifying with us in every way and then dying in our place. But that's not the end of the story. He was raised again to new life, just as the Father had planned, and he is coming back to rule us forever. That's our good news. This is the Son. And so if God is the Son, what does that mean about me? Well, you have to think a little more on this one. But if he's the son who's the king over everything and he came as a servant, what does that mean about you? That means that you are now a servant in his kingdom. It's easy to take the father child relationship and love that, but this is also truth. You are now a servant in God's kingdom. That's who you are. And if you're baptized into that identity, what is true of you? You're a servant. What is a servant? Put simply, a servant is the person who cleans up other people's messes in life. And when we serve others, when we together as God's body, as God's family, shoulder the load of other people's sinful choices, we really start to show what God is like. When we decide that, how much different though would your life be if you really believed, I am a servant now in God's kingdom. I've been bought. I have a new master God has a say in my life. What difference does that make? That changes everything. You are now blessed. So what do you get to do? You get to bless. How much different would your home be? Just take that for a moment. If as you walked in the door from work, you started to think, how can I serve and bless the people around me? How can I serve and love and bless my wife, my kids, my husband, whatever the case may be? How much would that change if you took that view of your neighborhood? I'm a servant. This is the piece of the kingdom God has given me to be a part of. What do I get to do? Where are the needs? As you take a walk, what do you see around you? What's broken? What's out of place? Is there some way God can use me to restore that? Even if it was somebody else's laziness or bad choices that caused it. How can I be an agent of restoration? How can I serve You see, the more you die to your own definition of you and embrace the new identity that God has given you, that you are now a child of God and you're a servant, life becomes really exciting. It's very energizing. Now, is that good news to you? Now, you might be able to say, I can see the father-child thing being good news, but the servant-king thing, I'm not so much sure if I like that one. Meditate on it. Because this is actually the path that God has laid out for us to have true joy. You see, the problem in the garden was Adam and Eve decided they could live life better on their own than they could with God's guidance. God made you for this. He made you to work the earth and to keep it for Him. You were made to be a servant. You were created for this. And again, you're going to see this mark in people all over the place. People want to serve. They really do. But it's been Pushed down a lot, and there's a lot of self service that goes along as well. But this is what we're rescued to. What would change if you really believed that you are a servant in Christ's kingdom? This is your identity now, this is your name, this is what you were immersed into at baptism. It's an interesting thought. The third one is that if God is the Holy Spirit, who is He? One person called him the strange uncle in the Trinity. We don't understand the Holy Spirit very often. And I hate that idea, but that is true. A lot of times we just don't quite know what to do with the Holy Spirit. We get a little concerned when he comes up. But the reality is the Spirit is God, a perfect person. And he's the life-giving agent of the Godhead. He indwells those who by faith receive the work of the Son of God. That word spirit means wind or breath. He's the life in God's people. He's the one who marks, who has been set apart as God's people. He enables us to live as God intended for us to live. He does all sorts of amazing things. He convicts of sin. He makes us fruitful. And as we grow in the understanding of his presence, he leaves a mark on us. And that mark is two things, beauty, the fruit of the spirit, and boldness. This is what he's doing. He is empowering you. John the Baptist compared him to being baptized with fire, that he's going to burn away the evil that's in you, the passions, the desire to identify yourself. He's going to re-identify you completely. And he's always, always, always pointing us back to the Son. He's there to remind us of the words of the Son. He's there to remind us, uh, change us to look like the Son. And he is always emboldening his people to magnify the Son. That's who he is. So if God is the Holy Spirit, then who are you? What is your identity that you get from this? Then you are now a missionary in his world. You're a missionary in his world. That's who you are. It's part of your identity. Again, this is from the beginning. God is a missionary God. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, God went looking for them. When Jesus came, he came to seek and save the lost. When the Spirit was sent, it changed ineffective cowards into bold proclaimers of good news. This is who we are now. You see, God has now breathed out, this God who breathed out the Scriptures is living inside of you now. You have the Holy Spirit in you to mark you, and He sends you out. See, the fruit of the Spirit is not just something that is given to you so you can live your best life now. The fruit of the Spirit is meant to be lived out in context of loving relationships. This is how you get to bless people if you're part of God's family. You're a missionary, and together we get to go out and live fruitful lives to multiply and fill the earth. We get to partner with God in showing the world what God is like. We get to go out and be a part of filling the world with God's glory. How do we do it? I like to say, filling it with God's glory, what does that mean? Well, it's just showing what God is really like. We have a world who has a desperately contorted view of God. And when God changes you, he sends you out to show this is what our God is really like. This is what our Father is really like. And as his people live as he is, And with the identity that he gives, it's amazing the change that takes place. We don't change the world by stuffy rule keeping. We don't change the world by making snarky remarks and insisting on our rights all the time. We get to go out and be a blessing. By life and word, we get to give bold testimony to who our God really is. The world needs that. I get to love my enemies the way God does. I get to serve sinners the way the Son does. I get to live in the freedom and identity the way the Spirit does. Is this good news for you? You've been renamed. You've been given a brand new, recreated triune identity, which is really actually just a recreation of the identity you were created for. I mean, you think about it. Why were you created in the first place? You were in God's image. Child. You were given the role of working the earth and keeping it. Servant. So you could fill the earth and subdue it, be fruitful and multiply. Missionary. Maybe representative is even a better word there. You're God's representative. Missionary, whichever you prefer. But this is who you are. And so let's take a minute and just think about this. What does this mean? If all of this is really true of me, if this is who I am now, what changes? Our application this morning is going to focus in especially on the idea of loving your neighbor and blessing them. But these identities really shape every area of your life. How does your identity change? How does this identity shape how you would live at home if you really believe you're a child, servant, and missionary? How would it change at your workplace? How would it change with your interaction with the church? How would your entertainment choices change? How would your money, finances change? How would your hobbies change if you really believe this about yourself, that God has re-identified you, he has renamed you as a child-servant missionary? Well, let's dig into that for just a little bit, but everything falls under this. All the other labels we choose for ourselves, whether they're true or false labels, whether it's father, which is a true label, mother, whatever, or we choose these other labels that we choose to define ourselves, that you know, our, our job, or I'm an accountant, or I'm homeless, or I'm ADHD, or I'm an introvert, or we can just keep going on and on and on with all these different things that we choose to use as labels. Those labels come under these categories. You still get to be a child servant missionary, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, whether you're ADHD or not ADHD. You get to be a child servant missionary. All these true labels that we take are not really our identities. We gave up our identity when we were baptized. When we came up out of that water, we are a new person. That's the picture, anyway, of what happened to the inward reality. You are a child, servant, missionary now. Let's talk about how it changes us. The first thing we see is that your belief in your child identity dispels fear. If you really get a hold of that, fear goes away. One of Satan's favorite and most effective lies is that your worth is determined by what you do. Your worth is determined by what you do. And so we have this what we call do-to-be distortion. I have to do something in order to be something. And our culture reinforces that at every turn. You have to do this so you can be this. But what if that isn't true? What if the gospel takes that and turns it on its head? What if the truth is that you are a fully valued child of God? Perfectly loved in every way. What changes about you? Literally everything. Because that's the essence of the gospel. The gospel is not do to be, it is be to do. Because of who I am, this is how I live. Because this is who God has made me when he saved me, this is how I get to live now. The essence of fear is that we're going to lose or not be able to get something that we value or we think will give us value. It's really what we're trying to hold on to, something that I need to make me valuable or that I feel is valuable. It could be anything, success, lack of conflict, being right, being unique, being safe, having fun, lots of different things. But the gospel cuts at the heart of Satan's do to be value system. He changes it and says, this is who you are. You are a child of God, and that can never be taken away. What would change if you knew that you had a wealthy father who loves you and has provi- promised to provide everything you need to accomplish the work he's given you to do? What does that change about you? Just think about it. Do you really need to be afraid that your home is too small or ugly? Do you really need to be afraid of what people think about the food you offer? Do you really need to be afraid that people are going to reject you and reject your invitation and maybe think it's weird? See, those people didn't die for you. Not one of those people died for you. Their opinion no longer matters. It has absolutely zero bearing on what God thinks about you. You are the child of the God of the universe, and he is crazy about you. That's your reality. That's who you are. That changes us. That gives a boldness and a confidence. It doesn't matter what people think about me. I can trust this Father with my safety. I can trust this father to give me the words to say when I need to say something. Half the time, it's better just to shut your mouth and listen anyway. I can trust the father that he's going to take care of the stolen and broken things. He owns everything. If he wants to take my stuff, he takes my stuff. That's fine. It's his anyway. This changes everything about us. And the more I interact with God's people and the more I look at my own heart, the more I realize I think we're really paralyzed by fear a lot, but we don't call it fear. We give it other names. But the problem I think we all face and really struggle with is we've got to come to really not just know this. Nobody, this is not new information that you're a loved child of God. That's not new to you. But the biggest distance in the world is from here to here. The head to heart. Call it the head-heart distortion. I know stuff, but it hasn't changed how I live. It hasn't gotten to the point where I believe and that changes my identity and how I live But your belief in God is going to really take away so much of this fear. But the problem is we either don't believe we're fully loved or in the face of our trials, the face of our fears, we don't really think that the love of an invisible God matters very much right now. That's the heart of it. The more you know your God and the more you know that he has identified you as a child and the more you take comfort and just be thrilled with that, the more changes are going to take place. It's an amazing thing. It's beautiful. The second thing that we see is that belief in your servant identity is going to motivate love. It's going to motivate love. We love talking about love more than we actually love loving. At least I do. I don't know about you. But love is messy, and it often feels like dying. In fact, that's the heart of love. Greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life. There is always a dying in real love. I have to sacrifice my comfort so you can be comfortable. I have to sacrifice my happiness so you can be happy. I have to sacrifice being seen so or being uh, hidden. I have to be hidden so you can be seen. All these different things that has to happen in real love. It's like dying. It's a sacrifice. That's what it is at its heart. And yet we know that we truly love someone. If when we see their success or we see their comfort or we see their safety, it makes us joyful and happy. If we love Jesus and we see Him as our King, that motivates us in an entirely different way. If we love Him, that's very different from just feeling like I'm some sort of servant that has to do what I'm told. There's a word I would love to get out of the Christian vocabulary, and that is the word should. Should. You should do this. You should do that. Should is the lowest form of service. It is service, and sometimes that's the best we can manage. I understand that. But there's little joy in serving out of guilt or obligation. There's little joy in that. If I go to my wife and give her flowers and say, here's what I should do, it's not going to go over real well. The reality is we get, we get to do this. This is our joy. Why? Because we want to see our king glorified. We want to see our king magnified and exalted and seen as he really is, as the most glorious being in the entire universe. That's what we should want. I just used it. <laughs> but the reality is this. We love our Jesus. And if we do It's so exciting when he's glorified, when he's magnified. And this totally changes how we live. So I think it's clear, if you've been here for a while at Northview, that your pastor thinks it's a good idea for you to love your neighbors and invite them over for a meal. Does the phrase, live and love like Jesus, ring a bell? I think it probably does. But it's so easy when we hear that, we can start to say, oh, I got to go invite my neighbors. I should do that. I really am feeling guilty. I should invite somebody over. But that's not our motivation. That's not what God wants. This isn't something you should do. This is your birthright. This is what you were born for. You get to go out and love and bless. And whether you do it like I do it or not, that's not the point. The point is you are now a recreated child of God and you get to, and this should stir up all kinds of joy because you're a servant in this kingdom and you love this king. That's who we are now. That's your identity. And so replace that word should with get to and just see how much it changes you. Or if it's a sin you're fighting against, think about I need not do that. Because I have such a great king. How have you loved and served your neighbors? What would change if you really believed that you were a servant in Christ's kingdom and this is your identity now, this is who you, what you were born into? You get to love because you've been loved. You get to forgive because you've been forgiven. You get to die so that others can live. The final part, belief in your missionary identity is going to spread hope. It really does. When you get a hold of who you are and that you are now part of uh, a missionary in God's world, you get to go and show and tell. We're back in preschool here. We get to show and tell what our father is like. We get to go and be part of helping those who are held captive by fear to understand they don't have to be afraid anymore because they've got a father who loves them. Those who are now living as if they have to protect and control things, that they can live free and generously because our Father is free, and, is free and generous with what He has. You get to show what God is like. How would your life change if you really believed you were a missionary in God's world? That's your identity. You can now sit down and eat with people who are being invited into a family, maybe for the very first time. You get to be God's ears to listen to people's stories and hear what are they trying to use to make life work? How are they trying to fix life? What do they think will save them? Then we can introduce a new thing that will really save them. You get to be God's hands and give generously. You get to be God's mouth and proclaim truth. When we live as children who are concerned with with what is most important to our Father, it gives hope. God has sent you out to show the world what he is like. And we do that best together, by the way. But how would your life be different if you really believed you were a missionary in God's world? As the worship team comes up, I just want to be here to remind you who you really are. You're a child in God's family. You have a perfect father. You're a servant in God's kingdom because of the Son. You're a missionary in God's world because of the Holy Spirit. This is your new identity. This is who you are. And the more you really sink down into that and believe, this is my identity, God has redefined me, the more you'll be able to say no to the fears that hold you back, and really begin to live like God's missionary, God's child, God's servant in this world.